chapter today, and we're going to open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This is the key verse, passage, whatever you want to call it, that we have been in every week of this series, Spiritual Warfare. I'm going to start with reading that, and we'll go on. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. But I beg you that when I am present, that I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. And this is key. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. As we've been expanding upon this whole concept of spiritual warfare, we've gone in a direction that really most of the time... You don't hear about when it comes to dealing with this subject because what we talk about a lot of time is we talk a little bit about the enemy and then we talk about who we are in Christ and all of that and that's all great stuff there's nothing wrong with that but I want to make sure that we have an understanding of who it is we're going up against because yes he's a defeated foe no question about it he has absolutely no authority in the believer's life the problem is is the believer is really good about letting him in anyway you know, it's, it's one of those things that it's just amazing to me that when we finally grasp the concept of who we are in Christ, then suddenly our, our bouts with the enemy change. They don't go away. We still fight them continually, but it changes because we now understand what the outcome is. And ultimately, we understand who actually fought the fight for us. And so, as we looked last week into the weapons that the enemy uses, and we talked about the main one, the thing that we hear all the time is pride. We see pride everywhere. We see it all over the nation. If you're watching anything with the current political uh, things that are going on, what is the one continuing, th continuing thing you see with a lot of these guys? They're prideful, right? They think they're the smartest, the greatest. They're the ones that are going to turn this country around. The new president who's going to come in, he's going to fix all the old problems. Well, it doesn't usually work that way. It can't hurt. But it doesn't mean it's always the case. Why? Because they're human beings and they think more highly of themselves than they ought. What we truly need is in a president is somebody who fears God, that has the heart of Solomon seeking wisdom and not the gains of this world. That's a tough thing to find, somebody willing to run for that. But if any of y'all in here want to do it, I'll vote for you. So just let me know. But we talk about pride and we talk about all the things that go on inside of that, the envy that takes place. And ultimately, all of this stuff leads to one thing, division, division among the body. It's division that has separated the church. That's why we have so many denominations, because they look at Scripture and see one thing. We look at Scripture and see another or whomever. And now we say, well, no, we can't fellowship together. We can't we can't work on what we agree on. We've got to talk about what we separate on. We've allowed division to set in and it shouldn't be. We allow it in our families. We allow it in our work lives. We allow it in our church and we shouldn't. Because we know it's a weapon of the enemy, and yet when it comes and rears its ugly head, we don't do the things that we should do to stomp it out. And so, as we talked about the weapons of the enemy this week, you've heard me say it time and time again, the enemy, while he's our enemy, is not our biggest problem. We have a problem greater than anything that a defeated foe can do to us. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And so you see that I've got a couple of things written up here on the board. The first word is justified. The second word is sanctified. 
And the third word is glorified. Or you could say it justification, sanctification, and glorification. I'm going to expound upon these and kind of give you some definition of what these are because these are theological words that are used, but they get thrown around a lot, but most people really don't understand what they are. And we're going to build a foundation starting with this. The word justification, the definition of that is the action of showing something to be right or reasonable. In other words, it's made right. It's showing that it's right. Maybe you've heard this said in churches somewhere before, that we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Maybe you've heard that vernacular used at some point or another. Those are things that are built on. But when we talk about justification, what it is, what are we talking about? We're talking about the gift that God gave that makes us right in His eyes. Right? Turn over to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 21. It's up on the screen if you didn't bring a Bible. It's always good to bring a Bible because it's, it, as I do go fast, so I realize you can't always turn to everyone. But it gives you a chance to underline some of the key words in these passages. Romans chapter 3 and verse 21 says, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've heard that a million times, right? But we stop there most often. But look at verse 24. Being justified freely by His grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as propitiation by His blood. Propitiation is a big fancy word for the payment of. It's, took, it's taking care of it completely. Propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, Jesus, that he is just and the one who justifies who whoever has faith in Jesus. Verse 27, where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Another way to say that is by your dead works. We are justified by one thing, the act of Christ, the acceptance of the free gift. That's it. We'll expound on that a little bit. Sanctification. The next word, sanctify, sanctification, however you want to say it is set a thing or person apart for the use intended by its designer. I'll read that again. To set a thing or person apart for the use intended by its designer. Who was our designer? God. So when we come to God, He justifies us and makes us right in His eyes. But then something begins to take place we begin this sanctification process. So in justified, we have been saved. In sanctified, we are being saved. In other words, we're being made holy on this earth in the eyes of God. We're righteous because of God's gift, but now becomes the part where we begin to play in this. And so we're going to really stay on that section the most, but I'm going to go on. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. In 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, 
that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, He or who has also given us His Holy Spirit. He's dis- making a distinction between a believer and an unbeliever. Most of the time when you see the word Gentile, it is referring to an unbeliever. Now, sometimes it's referring to Gentile believers. In other words, they weren't Jewish. But it, exp- it explains that in the passage. But he's talking about don't do the things like they are because you've been made holy by God. Avoid these. Who does the avoiding? We do. Who does the abstaining? We do. We're not a Holy Spirit puppet. He says, oh, nope, can't do it. Turn right. He doesn't turn us. We choose to do it. And that is the sanctification. The problem is, is in the church today, especially in the Catholic church, is that we've taken out justified and we've only put in there sanctified. The Catholic church uses the word sanctification for justification. They're saying that if we do enough good things and we be holy, then maybe we'll be right in the eyes of God and then our time in purgatory will be short. And that will be right there and he'll finish the process. The problem is, is that's contrary to what the Bible said, who said, I made you right by my death, burial, and resurrection. Now it's time to go and be made holy. And we begin to do that through sanctification. The last part of that would be glorification. The finality of the removal of sin from the life of the saints into the eternal state that God originally intended for us. What is that talking about? We were saved... We're being saved on this earth. We're being made holy and living a holy life here. And then someday Jesus is going to return and put us into a glorified body. Philippians verse three, or chapter 3, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to himself. You just got your first seminary lesson and it was free. It's worth exactly what you just paid for it. Isn't that good? People pay thousands of dollars for that. Just as if I never said. No, I haven't, but that's, that's a good point. If you didn't hear what she said, justified is just as if I'd never sinned. That's how, and that's exactly right. That's how God sees us. He sees us as, as perfect. You know, and of course he deals with us on this earth, but he sees us through the blood of Jesus, the price that was paid. So what does this tell us? It tells us that we are saved by grace alone, not works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So back in December, we did a series and we were talking about how people give their lives to God. And the problem is, is that religious tells us, religion tells us that this is what we have to do. We have to do certain things. We have to be a certain way. We have to act a certain way. We have to give a certain amount of money to the church. We have to do all of this stuff, and we hope that we do enough things that we can be right in the eyes of God at the day of our death, or the day of Jesus coming back, and that we will get into heaven. The problem with that, as I said before, is that it's exactly contrary to what the Bible tells us. Because what does the Bible tell us in Ephesians 2? That He's done it for us. So we are saved by grace. Okay? Grace. It's His grace. 
It's His willingness to save us. His willingness to pay the price for us. That's the only way we're saved. It's by His grace. That's what this talks about. But how are we saved? Through faith. I know you guys can read my terrible handwriting. Through faith. How are we saved? It's by grace. But it's through faith. Faith is nothing more than a mechanism. It's a substance of belief. That's all it is. We talk about faith a lot of times as if faith has some sort of power behind it. It really doesn't. Faith is simply believing. Faith is simply accepting that the Bible, what the Bible says is true, and therefore I'm going to believe it. And I don't care what anything else says. Because you've got churches all over America right now today telling people, if you want to get to heaven, you need to do certain things. You've got to be this kind of person. Give more money to the church and we can, we can make sure that you get in. Why do we do that? Because this we can understand. We can wrap our heads around this, right? If we do good at work, what happens? Sometimes we get a raise. Sometimes we get a promotion, right? If your kids are good at home, do we not reward them? Of course we do. We take them to do things. I took my kids this week to go see Frozen on Ice, right? Bought the tickets five months ago when they were being behaved. That's changed. But I'm already, I'm already $225 into it. We're committed. We're going. You'll be grounded when we get home. But I'm just kidding, obviously. But that's just it. We can, record, we can understand and wrap our head around a system of which we're rewarded for the things that we do. What we can understand is a system in which we're rewarded for the things that somebody else did. You see, Jesus paid it all. He gave it all. He gave everything. We're saved simply by grace through faith in Christ alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. We as human beings, after we've gone through this process, and maybe we can accept the done aspect, suddenly we decide to stay right with God, I've got to start doing. And that's not the case either. See, we're already right with God. We mistake these words all the time, and we mix them up and don't even realize that we're doing it half the time. When I give my life to Christ... It's done. But sanctification is the process in which the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth and begins to clean up our act to make us right on this earth, to be His workmen, to be His example, to be salt and to be light. You can't be salt if you're not salty. You can't be light if you're not bright. Our righteousness has more to do with what, has everything to do with what Jesus did, and it has nothing to do with what we bring to the table. The only thing we bring to the table is belief. We bring, we bring faith. So, we're going to hang out on sanctification. Everybody kind of understand that, get an understanding. I, I know I went fast, but that's, this has nothing to do specifically with what we're talking about. I wanted to lay a foundation of the three types. We hear the salvation thing, and I want to make sure there's no confusion. Because as we go on, you're going to understand this is going to make more sense as we go on. But open your Bible up to Romans chapter 7. I want you to see this one for yourself. We're going to start in verse 14. The sanctification process is something that we go through, that we're continuing to go through. We will always go to and, uh, through until we're glorified and be made exactly like Christ. Romans chapter 7. This is the biggest tongue twister in the Bible. Good old Paul laying it out as clearly as possible, about as clear as mud, but we'll break it down. Romans chapter 7 and verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. Sold under sin. Now, again, he's distincting spiritual man, carnal man. Make sure you know that going in. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. 
if then I do what I will not do, I agree that the law is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For the will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is my members. O wretched man, what I, or that I am, what, who will deliver me from this body of death? Catch your breath. What's he doing? He's saying, welcome to life. That's what he's saying. It's this battle that goes on daily. He's saying the things that I want to do, which the things I know I should do, those are the things that I don't do, but the things I know I shouldn't be doing, those are the things that I do do, and I'm drawn to them, and I try to fight them, but I don't always fight them, and I can't always beat them. He's talking about the battle that goes within, between our mind, will, and emotions, our flesh, our body, our human being that is drawn to sinful things, and the spirit that lives within us. That is sanctification. Because there's a balance that goes on, and it's weighted. When somebody first gives their life to Christ, a lot of time they're still weighted very heavy on the flesh side, let's call it that, right? The things of this world, the things that maybe aren't best for us. But as we really begin to grow in our relationship with God, it begins to change. The spiritual side of things begin to take over more and more and more, and suddenly the desires that you used to have, you no longer have. I no longer want to do the thing. What I wanted to do 10 years ago that was fun for me, and maybe in the movies I watched or anything like that, has absolutely no appeal to me whatsoever. Why? Because the Spirit has taken more control of my life today than He did 10 years ago. Now, i still got a long ways to go, as do all of you, but I'm making progress there. I'm not doing it to just please God. I'm doing it because I want to be just like God. And I can't be just like God if I'm still allowing this body to control everything that I say and do. The, our flesh is the biggest problem that we have. Our flesh and our mind, will, and emotions. Because we're physically driven. That is why this do is so powerful. Because we're driven to performance-based things. Okay, if I do this and I do that, I'll be good with God. If I show up on Saturday and I pray for 30 minutes, God will like that. He'll give me a gold star, right? I mean, we do things like that. We, we go to our Bible and say, okay, I haven't read today, but I know if I read an hour, God will really like it, so I'm going to do it. What have we just done? We've entered into a works-based mentality. We're not just doing it for God. We're doing it for ourselves, but it's always this mentality that I can do this and God will approve of me then. We've lost sight of the justification that God already approves of us. It doesn't always approve our behavior. And this is the battle within. So what did Paul just tell us in this passage? Who fights this fight? We fight it. Okay? Ephesians 4. I've got a lot of scripture today, so I just, if you can't turn to them all, um, just write them down and go home and read them, read them later. But Ephesians 4, this is powerful. Starting in verse 17. Again, this is Paul writing, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Let's stop there. Who is he talking to? Gentile believers. How did he just specify that? Don't walk like the rest of them who don't know God. Okay? 
in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of the, their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. Stop. Paul saying, don't be like them. Which implies that we choose whether or not we're going to be like them or not. You see what I'm saying? Verse 20, but you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. Verse 22, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. You ever heard that verse? That you're the old is gone, the new has come. When you give your life to Christ, you're a new creation. This is confirming that again. And what does it say? Created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And that word true jumps off the page at me. Because that means that there's an untrue righteousness and an untrue holiness. That's the implication there. Verse 25. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who steal, steal no longer. But rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all mouths, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Who is he talking about that we are to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another? The church. Fellow believers. He's not talking about unbelievers here because the context of this passage makes that impossible. He's talking about believers, but what do we do when a believer falls? Get away from me. I can't be around you. We don't restore people. And there's so much in here. The verse 27 where it says, nor give place to the devil. Some translation says, don't give the devil a foothold. What does that mean? That I can give the devil a foothold. How do I do it? By all the stuff we read just prior to that. And then some. This isn't all encompassing. This is just giving us a quick list. In verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Stop. How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? You remember in our Holy Spirit series, if you were here, what grieves the Holy Spirit? Sin. Sit. Sin grieves the Holy Spirit. But look at the second part of that. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now I want you to think about that. Paul is addressing this to a body of believers who obviously weren't doing right things. Some of them were doing the things that they shouldn't be doing, acting like the Gentiles who don't know God, right? So he's telling them, knock that off. And then later on he says, be kind to one another, forgiving one another, tenderhearted, get, show some compassion, forgive them just as God forgave you, right? So in other words, there's sin in the church. But verse 30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed to the day of redemption. What does this tell us? Our salvation is secure. That when we're justified, we can't become unjustified. If the Holy Spirit seals us unto the day of redemption, if we can do anything to unseal ourselves, 
that means that this verse isn't true. And if that verse isn't true, how many other verses are possibly not true? You see, again, we've got to look at things and look at the Bible as a whole and take it as for what it is. He says that we're sealed, and this is sin going on inside of the church. So he said one thing in there in verse 21. It says, as the truth is in Jesus. How do we know what truth is? Right? We talked about what is good this morning, we, how we measure good. And if you guys remember back in the Worldview series that, that I talked about, we compare one another to see who is good. And the truth is, is the standard is God, which means we've all fallen short, which we've read that verse before. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So if, if he's good, then none of us are good. Nobody can be good. We all fall short of that. The only way we're made good is through Christ. John 17, 17 says this, Sanctify them by your truth, your word. It's true. So what did the Bible just tell us that truth is? The Bible. The Word of God is truth. So what is the standard for truth? Again, it's the Word. It's the very Word of God. We've got to understand what this is. This is a collection of 66 books written by 40 authors over a 1,500-year span that has one central message, and that is the redemption of mankind through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. It's got a lot of nuances inside of it, but ultimately, that's what it is. What is truth? The Word is truth. What did Jesus say? I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. What does John 1 say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and all things that were made were made from the Word. And who is it referring to? It's referring to Jesus. What do we see? Jesus is the Word. He is the truth. You guys following me today? All right, good. Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Oh my goodness, there's so much in these two verses. Look at this. I beseech you therefore, brethren, who's he talking to? The church. By the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What is this saying? There's two types of sacrifice, obviously. One that is a price. We sacrifice something, and living sacrifice means we don't die. We live sacrificing to the will of God. Holy and acceptable God, which is your reasonable service. What's he saying? It's reasonable that we live holy because God is holy. Verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed... On your body by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We talked about this a little bit this morning. There's three wills of God. There's an acceptable will of God, there's a good will of God, and then there's the perfect will of God. And how can we prove what is? We have to renew our mind. And when we renew our mind, then our bodies will be transformed. Right? You guys with me? I don't want to leave anybody behind. We have got to grab and take captive every thought. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Who does all of this? We do it. Holy Spirit doesn't do it for us. We do it. We've got to take every thought captive and we've got to put it in obedience to what God said. But why don't we do it? We don't. We allow what to happen? We give the devil a foothold. We give place to the enemy. And then we wonder why things happen. 
Because we're not resting in the authority that we have. The fact that we play a part in our sanctification because the Holy Spirit's not going to force us to do anything. He can lead us, but we have to step out. James 4, 7 says this, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. What is this telling us? That if we should submit, that means we don't have to. Right? And who resists the devil? Not the Holy Spirit. We do it. And this word flee, when you look at it in the Greek, this isn't flee like, okay, sorry, didn't mean to bother you. I'll be on my way now. This flee is powerful. This is like dead sprint. You, uh, what's that Bolt guy? Usain Bolt, Insane Bolt? I don't know. He's fast. Whatever that guy's name is. And I mean, it is, it is gone. He has to go. It's not a slow, gingerly walk. Right? He's not going to go tiptoe through the tulips. He is Gandhi. He has got to get out of here. Why? Because the authority, when we resist the devil and we submit to God, those are in a specific order for a purpose. We submit to God, then we resist the devil. Because if we're not submitting to God, what are we doing? We're creating a foothold in our lives. We're almost done, I promise. How do we do this? Right? This is a lot of talk at this point. The things that we should do. Right? Most of us probably knew all of this up to this point, the things that we should be doing. Some of it's obvious, right? Galatians chapter 5, flip over there real quick. Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 16. I say then, again, this is Paul, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Okay, we're done, right? How does he tell us to do it? Walk in the Spirit. If we walk in the Spirit, we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Let's move on. Verse 17, For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Now think about to Romans 7 a little bit ago. The things that I want to do, I don't do. But the things I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. Again, it all ties in the struggle that goes on. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are. Okay, hold on. Evident. What does that mean? Obvious. Look at our Constitution. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. They're endowed by their Creator. What are they saying? This isn't the law of man. It's obvious that this is the case. Let's go on. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, evil, envy, excuse me, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in the time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, not an all-inclusive list, but it's pretty obvious. That if you lose your mind at the grocery store, that's not the will of God. That's not the acceptable or good or perfect will of God. If McDonald's is taking too long in the drive-thru and you're honking your horn like a maniac and yelling or throwing stuff out your window at the car in front of you, that's not the good, acceptable, or perfect will of God. Right? None of us do that stuff. I know. Okay? Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit. What's that mean? He's contrasting now. Is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk 
in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. There are two types of fruit going on. The fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And those who are in Christ have crucified the flesh. Who crucifies it? Those who are in Christ. Yeah, yeah, don't crucify your neighbor. Oh, you're wrong. Come with me. I want to show you something. Don't take them out back and whip them with the stick, you know. Maybe we could do that. It'd be fun. But we walk in the Spirit. In other words, we're spiritually minded to the things of God. We realize when something happens on this earth that irritates us, that there are greater tragedies in this world, and then I will take the opportunity to capture every thought that goes against the will of God. I noticed a difference in my driving when I lived in Tulsa, Oklahoma, than when I moved back to Nebraska. In Tulsa, Oklahoma, nobody knows how to drive. Turn signals, <laughs> turn signals are optional. Red lights mean that you should just slow down and look. You don't have to stop. I became a very angry driver, very angry. I would drive um, between 85 and 90 mile an hour down 169 weaving in and out of traffic because everybody should just be out of my way. They should see that I'm coming and get out of the way. And it would upset me when they didn't. If we would come up to a light, and they always have these third lanes here that end a few feet through the intersection, and somebody pulls up next to me, I felt it was my calling from the Lord to make sure they didn't get in. That was what God told me to do, right? What, for whatever reason, living in a big city brought a side at me out that I didn't even know I had until it, because when you grow up in small town Nebraska, right, you don't need blinkers because you know where everybody lives. So you know they're turning, right? I mean, it's just nice and relaxing. And so, I don't drive like this anymore, okay? I, am, I have tamed the beast, so to speak. But it was amazing. There were these two fruits going on. I can be nice. I don't even mind giving up parking spots. I'll park way on the other end of Walmart. No problem. But for whatever reason, you got me on the road. I was angry. I never got out and hit anybody's car with a crowbar or nothing, but I thought about it a lot. And I felt maybe they needed it. It would teach them. So anyway, but we have these two fruits going on. And we have to crucify the flesh with its passions and its desires. It kind of comes down to if you've ever fasted, right? What is the purpose of fasting? Does it make you holier? Nope. Doesn't. Doesn't bring you closer to God. Doesn't make God more impressed with you. Jesus made that very clear. Don't do this as the Pharisees do. What does it do? You're crucifying your flesh. And if you've ever done it for an extent, I just did a three-day fast, uh, I think it was the last week. And day one wasn't bad. I was in the office all day studying, so I wasn't really thinking about it. I spent some more time praying and stuff. And then day two hit, and it was rough. But day three, day three sucked, right? Because the flesh is like, feed me, Seymour. What are you doing, right? It is, it is just, give me something, and I'm just like, no, I'm not going to, what am I doing? I'm trying to crucify my flesh. And that flesh got loud and it got grumpy. I noticed that my response to my children's actions changed from day one to day three. They were way more irritating on day three. And I, I don't know if that's by design or what, but it's probably their fault, I'm pretty sure. But it, again, it is the crucifying of the flesh. Why? I want to produce more fruit for God. Therefore, I've got to get my life under control and I do whatever I have to do to discipline it. As you know, I love Diet Coke big fan, connoisseur of it. I can tell the difference between Diet Coke and Diet Pepsi. Everybody's like, you can't taste the difference. There's a distinct difference. And if you can't taste it, get your taste buds checked. They're broken. But anyway, 
But I have to, from time to time, quit drinking it. Why? Because I don't want anything to control me. And as stupid as that may sound to you, Diet Coke is good. I thought about having it for communion. I thought that would be a nice touch. But I decided against it. But, but, but still, I mean, it's a good thing. But I have to go. You know, I'll go. I'll take a month off. I'm like, I'm not going to touch it. I'm not going to drink it. And guess what? I, I, I crave it. I want it. I desire it. You know, just because it's good, and it's definitely good, doesn't mean it's something we need. So we've got to crucify our flesh. And how do we do that? We watch the things that we say. James 3 and verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is said among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison with with it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing, my brethren, these things ought not to be so. What did James say about the tongue? It's evil. Straight out of hell. Why? The same mouth that we bless God with is the same mouth that we curse somebody else with. That we pass judgment on somebody else's life. That we do all of these things, right? So much is controlled here with the things we say, that if we can simply control the things that we say, we can really control the outcome of our world because we have begun to take every thought capture. Before you say something, you have a thought, right? Before I yelled at drivers out on the highway, I had a thought. And thank God there was somewhat of a filter between my brain and my mouth that took out all the really bad words and just kept the ones like, you idiot, learn to drive, you know, put on your glasses, something like that. But but again, it's just if we can capture every thought, our tongue will no longer be guiding our life. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 19, For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What's he talking about? It's no longer I that live but it's Christ that lives in me. I crucified the flesh. I've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live. What are we talking about? Justification. Because I have been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who lives, but it's He that lives in me, so I need to let Him rise up. I need to not give the devil a foothold. Let's read Romans 12, verse 1 again. This is the last verse. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And this is where we fail. You see, we don't, as, as believers today, we don't crucify the flesh. Do you realize that fasting is a part of our worship to God? What are we doing? We're crucifying the flesh. We're saying, I don't care what you want. I'm going to do this. And this doesn't mean that we have to do 40-day fast and stuff like that. But it should be a part of our life. Jesus says, when you fast, implying that you will do it. Not if you fast. It should be a part of our life. We should be doing things to crucify the flesh. To take these, renew our mind and take these thoughts captive to gain control of our body and our thoughts and our words so that everything we have glorifies God. But we don't do that today. Right? We have a Christianity in America that's just like, oh, it's okay. This is just who you are. You're just angry. That's all right. As if that gives us a pass. 
when something doesn't go our way and we flip our lid, we're like, well, they're just, they just, you know, they got a short fuse and, and whatnot. You just kind of let it go. No, that shouldn't be how it is. We should work on that. We should change that. I don't know if you read the news uh, this last week, but about the Ashley Madison website, the thing that took place. I, I knew very little about it. I remember reading about it five or six years ago, I think. And was just appalled by it because I couldn't believe anybody would actually do such a thing. This website, if you don't know what it is, was created where you can go in there, you pay money to create an account, and this is for people looking to have affairs. This is a married husband, wife, whatever, very secretive. Their website got hacked recently, and they released a lot of information of people who were on it. Um, Josh Duggar was one. There's numerous other ones. Ed Stetzer, who is he's a well-known church guy, statistician, studies trends, he says that today that he is expecting 400 pastors, elders, or deacons to resign because they had Ashley Madison accounts, and it's come out. Now think about that. As we're talking right now, at churches across the country, pastors are standing up and, and resigning their positions. For what reason? They did not crucify the flesh. They did not renew their mind. They allowed things to tempt them from this world. And they didn't, they didn't do the things that God told us to do. It, it, I mean, we read all the verses that if we do these things, then we won't do these things. And yet, the guys that should really be upstanding citizens and doing the things right and really should be living the Bible weren't doing the simple things that Paul said. But we shouldn't be surprised by this. Because why? They're human beings. And there's a lot of churches that are going to be devastated by this. Because a lot of these people have put their faith in their pastor or, or, or an elder in the church or a deacon. And be like, I can't believe that they would have such a thing. Right? And that's why we put our faith in God. Remember we said at the beginning, if God is good and He is the standard, we're all somewhere down here. It's no different than for a pastor. But it breaks my heart. Because it's like, here it is, think about the upheaval. Think about the chaos that's going to go on. Think about how the devil thinks he's going to win in a battle going on right now because men refuse to crucify their flesh. This is why this is so important. Your biggest problem is not the devil because he can't make you do anything that you're not willing to let him. We have got to take a stand. And we've got to make changes in our lives. And that's the bottom line. Every one of us in here have something in our life. Now, it may not be that. It may not be some Ashley Madison account. You may not be out there chasing around looking to have an affair or anything like that. It may not be anything. But there are parts of our lives that we've not crucified. You know, there are things that go on. It's just as an example, and we've talked about this before. But 20 years ago, the average person who claimed to be a church member made it to 50 Sundays a year. That was the average. Why did they miss two? They were usually on vacation, two-week vacation. Other than that, and sometimes there was sickness and stuff, you know, whatever. Today, it's 24. They consider themselves full-time church members. Why? They don't crucify the flesh. I don't want to get up on Sunday. It's my day off. I want to sleep in. Or, you know, I, I stayed out too late on Saturday. Or, or I want to go boating or, or whatever the case may be. And again, don't make this a legalistic thing like you can't ever miss a Sunday or you're going to hell. Because that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is it's just how the world has turned. You see, what that tells me is that the world's had more influence in the church than the church has in the world. That's all that tells me. 
We're moved by the things we desire. We're moved by the things we feel. We're not moved by the truth that we know. We don't allow this book to guide our life. Every time I sit down with a, a couple in marriage counseling, they're struggling and there are different struggles that go, go on. The number one reason marriage is split up is over money. The number two is sex. Those are the one and two. I always set this book on my desk and say, will you agree that this book is the final authority in your life? And if they say yes, we continue. And if they say no, I shake their hand and say, there's nothing I can do for you. Because if this isn't your guide, now it's just your opinion. And because you feel hurt or violated or he said something that made you mad or whatever the case may be, or she said something or did something or whatever, that you're going to allow that to trump what Scripture says. doesn't mean there's not grace. That doesn't mean there's not forgiveness. It doesn't mean any of that kind of stuff. But we've walked away from this, and that is why we've allowed the world to influence the church the way it has today. So here's what I want to do. I just want to take a minute. We try to end every service with a worship song, you know. And, and when we do this, I just, I'm asking you to just pray. Ask the Holy Spirit, what is He trying to tell me through this message? I don't just put these things together arbitrarily. I do feel that, that this is the direction the Holy Spirit leads us every single week. Um, I've told you before, sometimes we change things, you know, the week of or whatnot. But what is He trying to speak to me and get through to me? And so as you're worshiping God, just ask Him that. And just do what, what we talk about every week. Lord, all I am is Yours. And how can I fix the things that I need to fix? And as always, if you need prayer for anything, just please come up. We'll be happy to pray for you. Okay?